Today's scripture is found in Mark 6, 1 through 6. Please stand for the reading of the word. Mark 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Um, as we get started, just uh, want to ask a question. And if you guys can recall with me, how many of you remember the show American Idol? All you guys remember that? How many of you guys watched multiple seasons of American Idol before? You can be honest, it's all right. We did too. Uh, of course, we, it's, it's one of those shows that's kind of burned into our collective minds, right? We could even imagine that, that song to start with as it opens up on the screen. And some of us lasted a season or two. Some of us are still watching. T- Actually, is anybody still watching today? Don't be ashamed. I'm curious. Anybody watch American Idol still? No? All right. Well, that's, that's okay. So... But one of the things that I can remember about American Idol, and maybe you can too, is that um, right around, I don't know, maybe the the last eight contestants of the show, they'd always have this kind of homecoming episode. You remember that? Where they'd always go home, and they would kind of go to their small town America place, or they'd go to their city, and they would visit home, and visit family, and visit friends, and they would go to the school that they went to, and they would, you know, visit that school. There'd be a ribbon um, cut in front of some kind of business kind of opening kind of thing, and everybody was there. The mayor was there. Everybody was super proud of these contestants, and some of these kids were just blown away by the support they received from their hometowns. Uh, The school band would come out. Sometimes there was a city parade all to celebrate, you know, like Judy Jones or, or Mike Miller for being on uh, American Idol, right? It was a big deal. And, and sometimes they would talk to these old teachers and these old uh, coaches and, and such. And I'll tell you what, some of those teachers and coaches could have probably made a lot of money at fortune telling because apparently they knew, right, all along that these folks were, were it, right? I knew it. She'd make it all along. I never had a doubt in my mind. I could just tell by the way that he ran that football he would win American Idol, right? That kind of thing. Uh, or some of these moms, right? Like just kind of like crazy things. I, I heard my daughter singing in the shower, and so I knew for a fact, uh, I was convinced that, that she would win uh, American Idol. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm poking fun a little bit, but honestly, what a great experience that must have been. Right? Think about kind of putting yourself out there for a minute, doing something that it's kind of crazy, a little bit vulnerable, and you put yourself out there, go home, and everybody shows up. What an amazing experience that must have been for those, those kids. Like, hey, guy, hey, gal, we're behind you, right? Like, we are proud of you. We're proud that you came from our hometown, and look what you've done now as, as a result. In our, our passage this morning in Mark 6, as you just heard, Jesus is back in his hometown, 
And he was born in Bethlehem, you recall, and he's chosen Capernaum as kind of his base of operations. But Jesus is from Nazareth. That's the place that he is from. And this is home. This is the town that he spent the majority of his growing up years. This is the place where he probably got his first you know, apprenticeship as a carpenter. And the whole town knew about it because it was a small town. And they were all excited that that little Jesus was, was growing up to be just like his dad, Joseph. And he was also getting into the family business. Uh, if you know me long enough or know me well enough, I have this annoying habit of, of driving people around to places that I'm from. Um, I, I've done this to my staff before. Um, Ellie and Daniel can, can attest, like, hey, this is the, the pizza parlor, you know, in Pomona that we always went to growing up. And they're like, thanks, Stephen, for, for showing me that, right? I literally just did this to my wife last, last weekend. We were on a date night in, in Brea, and I was like, I think in, in nearby Yorba Linda, there's this, like, sandwich shop that my, my mom used to take me to that had good pickles. And my wife's like, I guess we're going there. Like, I guess we are. It was like 9.30 at night, and we rolled up into this like, like kind of strip mall area, and we found the sandwich shop, which isn't there anymore. But um, this is the kind of thing that I will do. I, I'm kind of nostalgic in this way. And I, I don't know, maybe Jesus was the same way. He, he took his disciples all to Nazareth to show him the houses that he built or, or the things that he was involved in or these milestones or this is the park where this happened or all these things from his childhood. And eventually it says in verse 2, if you look at Mark 6, that they show up in the synagogue, the, the main place of worship. And the story kind of starts from, from here. And what we're going to see this morning in our time together is that the people of Jesus' hometown have a hard time taking him seriously. They have a hard time kind of framing like, hey, I know you in this context and yet you are saying all these other things, and you're doing all these other things. And so this is not the American Idol hometown welcome that they had hoped for. And there's this hurdle, this hurdle that seems to get in the way of the momentum that Christ had been experiencing with the disciples so far. So far, it's been amazing. Things have been going great. People have been healed. People have, we've had demons come out of uh, Demon Dave, if you recall. There's been people who have been transformed and healed in all kinds of ways. And except when they get to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. So as we look at these verses this morning, I want you to see four things, uh, four things happening in these six verses. And um, it's funny, you start writing a sermon, and actually originally I had uh, Mark 6, 1 through uh, 13 uh, as kind of like kind of uh, here for us. But I realized there's, there's so much in these first six verses that we're going to have to get to the next part next week. But uh, there's four things happening in these six verses, and it's three reactions that the Nazarenes have to Jesus, and then one response that Jesus has in return. So um, as we look at reaction and response, I, I hope that you see uh, this warning to us, this, this very kind of it's, it's a little bit of a, a cautionary tale to us that the gospel is offensive when people are not ready to hear it. And, and maybe that's applicable for you personally. Maybe that's applicable just for, for you and the people you're interacting with and you're praying for and you're sharing the gospel for as well. So uh, look at verse 2 and we see the first reaction to Jesus. Uh, Mark 6, verse 2, it says this, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? I'm, put, I'm adding the emphasis, but it's kind of how I read it a little bit. What is this wisdom given to him? 
How are such mighty works done by his hands? So the first thing I want you to, to note is that they are astonished by his teaching. Now, this is something that we've actually talked about in previous weeks and months as far as how people react to Jesus. And it's important that we don't just kind of rush past this because it could be easy for us to be like, yeah, 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 like Jesus teaching. It's good, right? It's good stuff. Uh, but it's important to remember that the people are still astonished. They're still amazed by his teaching. And if you recall in, in earlier chapters in Mark that they were astonished by his teaching because Jesus taught with authority, and not like those who were the scribes and Pharisees of his time. He taught in a different way. He taught in a fresh way. And it would be easy to brush past this, but it's important to realize that the content, the preaching is still hitting on all cylinders. Like people are hearing truth like they've never heard truth before. People are hearing the gospel for the first time. People are, are coming to saving knowledge and faith. And, and before, they had adhered to this blatant moralism of that day. If you were a good uh, kind of first century Jew at that time, you would have been uh, taking the law of God and said, this is how I live my whole life. And they thought, if you want to earn God's favor, then I study the law, adhere to the rules, rinse and repeat, right? Like, that's kind of the idea. That, that's how you please God. That's how you live a good life. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, no, no, there's, there's more to this. There's a new way. And it's not to abolish and get rid of the old way, but it's to fulfill the old way in a new way. And, and so Jesus calls people to repentance. He says that this only works if you start with a humble heart and you realize that emptied out, I'm, I'm nothing without the God who wrote those rules. And this is the same message that John the Baptist proclaims in Mark 1. And it's the same message that actually you see if you skip down to verse 12 of chapter 6. It's the same message that Jesus instructs the disciples to also share as well. And he says, look, the message is about repentance. It's about repentance. The message doesn't change. It hasn't changed for 2,000 years. It's still the same. It's still the same for us this morning, this Sunday here in Ontario. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the gospel message. And I, I hope that you're still astonished by that message as well. But the hometown hears it, and they are astonished. They are amazed. Now, they're also kind of dumbfounded. I was thinking about how many ways you can say that word and I feel like kind of being dumbfounded is, is one way that maybe they're circling around a little bit. Because when they zoom out and they realize who is doing the teaching, it's not just stunning, it's not just amazing, but they're kind of like confused a little bit too. Uh, it's kind of like the, the, the way that we are amazed as kids. Remember when we were in school and you see your teacher at the store and you're like, what? What? what am I seeing right now, right? Like, you're like, you, you're, you're my teacher, and you're buying grapes. Like, I, I guess you're buying grapes for a school lesson, right? No, you're going to eat the grapes, right? Like, that's, that's crazy, right? So you're kind of dumbfounded in that way. Like, how can these things be true? You're seeing these things kind of come about. That doesn't make sense, that this is happening from this person. And that leads to our next point. They're astonished by the teaching, but number two, they are skeptical of the source, they are skeptical of the source. 
Look at verse 3 again. Uh, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They can't believe that this same Jesus that they grew up with could say and do what this man was saying and doing. Why? Because the source was so familiar. They had a a box, the small box in their minds for who Jesus was, and this just would not fit in that box. They, They thought, oh, that's just Jesus. We know him. Like, we know his parents. We served on PTA with his mom, right? Like, we know his brothers, we remember when his brothers and, and would get in trouble, uh, you know, all those years ago. He's always just been around here. And I can relate to some of those same comments, and, and maybe you can too, right? Like sometimes people who, I think we talked about this a few, week, a few weeks back, like sometimes older folks don't see us as we grow up in, in certain lights, and they can't let go of that. Um, I, I attended a, a school, a Christian school in Pomona for my kindergarten through eighth grade. And that Christian school was also run by a church that I attended on Sunday mornings. And that church also had a Boy Scout troop that I also went to once a week, like on Tuesday nights or something like that. And so that meant I spent a lot of time on that campus. I'm not sure if maybe you guys have a context like that, where you spent a lot of time in one place. And so every, every day during school, one night of the week for Boy Scouts, one night of the week for youth group, every Sunday for church, I was at the same campus. And you better believe that familiarity, it went both ways because I knew how to get on the roof of every building, right? Like I I knew where all the best snacks and sodas were. I knew which had the best toilets, right? Because we all care about that stuff, right? Like that's all important to us. And what's crazy is that in the 10 years that I was on that church campus, all was there, all was there every night of the week, you know, every single day. Just, just nearby, in, in rooms next door, people were being, like, radically saved, right? Like, people were having these moments where they were counseled or they were being brought out of, out of broken marriages or relationships that needed healing. Deeply important spiritual work was happening all around me. But I didn't see any of that because this is my school, right? This is my, my this place where our, our Boy Scout troop met on Tuesday nights, and, and Christians, I'm convinced that it is easy for that to happen to all of us, that you and I become skeptics oftentimes because of familiarity. That you and I become skeptics because we're familiar, because it's old hat, because we've been there, we've seen it before. And when you're around something amazing, sometimes that amazingness can wear off and you can move on like business as usual. And if you're not grateful, and if you're not open to the work of the Holy Spirit, if you don't foster that sense in your heart that God can work even in the familiar, then you'll miss it. And I think this is why Christ's family in Nazarene uh, was had had so in Nazareth had so much against them. And they listed off his family by name. They knew Jesus' resume. And their familiarity with spiritual things got in the way of God doing miracles in their midst. Some of you have that same story as me. You grew up going to church. Um, you grew up going to, you know, a Christian school or a school in general, and you knew where all the best bathrooms were too, right? Like, uh, you grew up in youth group, 
Maybe some of you still work in a Christian organization. I want to remind us that for, for many of us here in this room, and I don't want to just project on you, but perhaps being familiar and close to the things of God is going to be one of the greatest spiritual burdens we carry. Because we're going to have to constantly remind ourselves that God is at work in, in our midst. And we just don't see it. We, we, we don't allow ourselves to see it. And, and even if you just come to church on Sunday mornings uh, here, here at King's, like we get accustomed to God doing spiritual things, right? Like it's church. People get saved. That's what's supposed to happen at church. It's church. People get baptized. That's, that's what's supposed to happen at church. And if we don't stop and think about how amazing that is, how God is at work in our midst. And so don't be a spiritual skeptic because you think you've been there and done that. Like, are you open to God working in the mundane parts of your life, the familiar areas of your life? So let's get practical. Like, uh, parents, are you, are you open to God working in your parenting this week, those relationships, those conversations you're having with your kids, those discipline issues? God's at work in your life too. In, in your workplace, are you, are you open to that Tuesday morning meeting with your boss being an opportunity for God to speak into your life as well? Not just simply to hear some feedback from the guy who signed your paychecks. And, and what's at stake here? What's at stake? All throughout Mark, we've seen this connection between faith and Jesus' power to heal and restore the people he comes across. And remember just last week in Mark 5.34, Jesus heals the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well, meaning there's an important connection between God's effectiveness in our context and the earnestness of our faith. And so if you look down at verse 5 of Mark 6, it says this, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. What did the town of Nazareth miss out on that day? Like, what could have been? And the same is true for you and I. As, as we, I know that we all yearn for God to work in our life. We would say that. We would sign the document. Yes, I'm, I'm on board with that. But are you, are you open to the possibility he's working now in, in a context that's familiar to you? Um, even in this, in this time. The next point I want to point out here, their, their reaction, they took offense at him. Not only uh, were they skeptical, but they took offense at him. Look at the end of verse 3. Uh, it says they took offense. It's almost as if it was written this year, right, in 2023. I can imagine, like, like Jesus was canceled in some way. They were offended by Christ. They were offended by the notion that someone like Jesus could be the Son of God. And so, again, it's important that we remember the origin story of Christ because he came from very humble beginnings. We talked about this uh, at length during Advent season. But first of all, remember that he was born in a cave. Uh, I know that's kind of like, we kind of put that in the narrative of Jesus. I would imagine, though, that most people, even in like his time, weren't born in a cave. And so there's even that to hurdle. And it's kind of a strange place to be born. And you know that's a story that probably gets brought up when you live in the same place and uh, all your life. Like, right, Jesus, close your mouth while you're chewing. What were you, like born in a barn, right? You heard that before? Well, kind of, like he was born in a cave. Like, that's pretty close. Jesus was working class. He was not formally educated. 
And everyone kept tabs on things like that, right? Like, I almost think about these, like, uh, sometimes you see these in kind of movie genres where there's, like, certain towns in Boston or, like, on the East Coast that it's, it's this working class, everybody knows everybody. Uh, they, they make a big stink if people think that, that you're better than the, the town you came from. No, this is just Jesus. This is the guy who built me a bench a few years ago. And to be honest, it wasn't that great of a bench, right? Like, there's... There's probably this sense of, like, who is he to put himself in the story of God? And not only that, as the son of God. Um, I've been blessed the last few years to make a handful of friends in, in Ireland. And you guys met Johnny Pollock last, last fall. He was here. He spoke. Um, Lucas Parks is now at Foothill Church, and he was originally from Village Church in Belfast. And, and Irish culture is great. It's a lot of fun. It's loud. Um, there's, there's a lot to uh, catch on to that's, that's easy to catch on to. But there's actually one dynamic that's somewhat unique about Irish culture, and it's the way that the Irish view their own. And if, if they become ultra successful, if they have like the celebrity status, like think Bono from U2, he's from Ireland. Think Conor McGregor, right? He's from Ireland, from the UFC. There's this dynamic that switches over called tall poppy syndrome. And maybe you've heard of this before. And it's the sense that, hey, good for you, better yourself, that's fine, make some money, increase your station, but only to a certain level. And the moment that you make too much money or you're too visible, we're going to cut you down. Like imagine a whole field of poppies, these kind of all uniform and beautifully kept poppies, and one or two decide to grow taller than the rest. The Irish don't see that as a good thing, so they'll they'll chop those poppies off, right, at the, at the stem. Listen to this from Irish psychologist Wayne Cronin. For centuries, we were taught to keep our heads down and not draw attention to ourselves. This is inherent in Irish people because of their low self-esteem. I'm not saying this, she's saying this, all right? Uh, very simply, we don't praise each other enough. Perhaps it comes from years of oppression, from a time where success was simply out of reach for the average Irish person. And so it was viewed with suspicion, some people may feel that they're not good enough, not clever enough, and they won't achieve their goals. And so when others succeed, there is an inner rage and resentment that says, if, if I can't have it, then I don't want you to have it either. Now, this isn't healthy. <laughs> this is not something that we want to take on and aspire to. And I realize that some of you are not Irish, and you maybe feel this way about people. Or maybe you've been the subject of someone feeling that way about you. But perhaps this gives us some understanding of what is causing the offense in Mark 6. And that's why Jesus says in response to that offense in verse 4, I'm sorry, Mark, yeah, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. Guys, this is still the problem for many people today. Many people know the stories of Jesus. Like they have the right theology about who he is. But when it comes to actually following Jesus as king, they take offense. They already know the stories. They already know what he says. But when it comes to submitting to him, they, they take offense. They're like, why would I have to do that? Uh, especially when he says things like, he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And you start to realize Christ was kind of offensive. Like he kind of demanded a lot. 
And sooner or later, I just want to remind you, maybe it's already happened. Maybe it will happen in the future. Each of us will be offended by Jesus, by either what he says or what he requires of our life as far as life change. Because the gospel is naturally offensive to us. We, we talk about the gospel a lot here, or at least we say the, the word gospel, and I want you to understand there are many facets that are amazing about the gospel. And, and one of the things about the gospel is that it, it's, it's telling us something that we lack, right? Like, it's saying that we are, we are sinners in need of a Savior. That's kind of actually uh, the first message of the gospel. And honestly, we don't want to be told that, as a default, we want to be told that we're, we're perfect or that we're, at least we're pretty good. And, and the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says, no, you need to change. And the problem isn't the world that you're in or the neighbors that you have, or the coworkers you have. The problem lies in your own heart. That's what the gospel says. And, and we can't just be accepted for who we are, but we have to change. And Christ says that we are we are naturally dead in our sin and trespasses. Paul says that. And following Jesus actually means denying myself. And the problem with that is that the world puts, puts our needs and our desires first and foremost. And so, again, we're going to be naturally offended by that at some point. And maybe you already have. Maybe you are right now. But the question is, is what will be your response to that offense? I want to remind you again, some of you, there's... There's a lot that you know about Jesus. You know a lot about his, his theology and his Christology and who he is and what he did historically. But some of us will abandon Jesus when he offends us. And what Jesus is after is those who will follow him and love him and obey him. And I honestly think that there, this is kind of the sign that the Spirit is at work in your life. That when you hear the gospel news, when you hear the good news about how Jesus came to save you, that our hearts would leap for joy. That it wouldn't shut down. It wouldn't be like, well, I don't need that. And I think that's one of the true signs that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, that, that we would be excited about that news, that it would truly be good news to our ears. The next thing, the last thing I kind of want to point us to is how Jesus responds here in verses 5 and 6. And I want to remind you, too, that this, is, this whole story is a bit of a cautionary tale. And, and, and so you see that, by the way, he responds. Look at verse 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So earlier, it was the crowd who had been amazed by Jesus. But here, it's actually swapped. Jesus is amazed at his hometown crowd, and he's not also amazed in a good way too because he's amazed at their unbelief. And that's why in verse 6 it says that he, he left. He went about to the villages teaching, and when his hometown crowd doesn't believe him, number four, Jesus responds in this way. He takes his message elsewhere. Jesus takes his message elsewhere. You know, it's pretty crazy that, that Jesus takes off and, and leaves them. And I, I, I don't think he's being petty, right? I think he's doing it very intentionally. And think about the power he has. Think about um, 
the influence, the, the, the voice he has, the way that he could speak to people directly into their hearts, and yet he chooses to leave. And these are his, his family, right? Like, these are people that he, I'm sure he cares about deeply. He loves very much, and yet he decides, you know what, I can be effective somewhere else. There are other people who will be more receptive to this message. And there's an important lesson to be learned here, that if you reject Jesus, he will depart from you to another. If you reject the good news of Jesus Christ, he will go elsewhere. And I hope that we understand the seriousness of what we're reading. And I hope we understand the implications of him going to another place with good news. It doesn't matter if Jesus were to do a bunch of miracles in his hometown. They might be impressed for a moment, but their hearts were hardened with unbelief. And that meant that he left their, their midst. We also have this terrifying illustration in the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. You don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, just kind of write Revelation 2. The church of Ephesus, um, the early church in Ephesus could boast of great spiritual leaders. They had some great leaders leading the charge in their history. It had been the Apostle Paul who was with them for three years. Timothy had been there. The Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John was an elder there. And yet, even with all that good leadership, we read these words from Jesus in Revelation 2. But I have this against you, that you abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And it, it's, it's nerve-wracking. It's a little bit terrifying that that Jesus would remove his presence from a place where he's not wanted, where he's not worshipped fully. And the church of Ephesus had become hardened by their sin, and they were being commanded to repent. Otherwise, Jesus would remove himself from their midst. And it's a dangerous thing when Jesus removes the opportunity for us to respond to him. And I think it's also instructive for us as well who carry the message of the gospel. And I want to dip into next week a little bit, but look at verse 11. Uh, of chapter 6. Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles, and he says, look, this is what you do. Um, if, if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so the mission of the disciples was to be marked by a humble persistence. They were instructed to gain audience by, by all means, but they were never told to force themselves um, onto unwilling people who would, would not hear them. And we must remember to not take God's, uh, God's word for granted because God will never force himself on you if your heart is hard, if you are resistant. He will take the gospel and his presence to another place who are more willing to hear it. You know, as, as we close, I was, I, was thinking about, I was thinking of this passage in regards to what what is happening, what has happened at Asbury University in Kentucky. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I think that I've had a couple of weeks to just think through my own emotions and the thoughts about the revival that happened or, or has happened on that campus. Um, I, I admit I sometimes can be skeptical of things like that. I admit that sometimes when I, when I hear that information, I hear that news, my, my heart tends to go towards you know, well, well what, what was the circumstances of this? What had been said beforehand? Who was there to kind of capture that on video? All those kind of questions that really, it, it doesn't matter when it comes down to it. 
And let me just make it clear. I, I believe that revival happens. I, I believe it happens when God's people open themselves up to confession, to prayer, and it's something that we need to be thinking about as well. But as I thought about this passage and just the hard-heartedness that Jesus was, was up against in his hometown in Nazareth, you know, it, it made me think of that question of just like, why Asbury, right? Why Kentucky? That's so strange, right? Like, like why not New York City or like L.A. or some kind of big cultural city where, where people would be saved by the thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, you know, why not here in Ontario? And, and it makes me wonder, had God tried before? Had the, Holy, had the Holy Spirit been in those places and people had been hardened at their heart? And is it possible that we are a church, even though we are new and even though we have some of these things in front of mind, could we be a place where we are hardened against the Holy Spirit? And I pray that that would not be the case, that our hearts would be willing to hear God at work, to see God at work in all the places that are familiar. I don't have some great anecdote, honestly, about that revival other than I, I pray it happens here. I, I hope that it would happen in our own hearts starting with, but, but as we consider and see more of those things happening, that God would remove our, our skeptical eyes and we would remember even passages like this and realize that God sometimes does amazing things in our midst, in the familiar. This passage instructs us in many ways, but let me just remind you of the big idea as we close. Jesus is going to be offensive. He's going to invade our lives. He's going to arrange our priorities differently, and it's going to be uncomfortable. It might even be a little bit painful, but there is joy and relief when we confess our sin and believe in Christ. And, and be ready. That might happen in the everyday mundane things. It may happen in those familiar areas that we're not even expecting. And so I hope you've done this, that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. I hope you believe this, that you believe that Christ's perfect life and death provide the sufficient payment for your sin. I hope you confess this. I hope you believe this. I hope you, you will today. And so let's pray to that end. Let's bow our heads. God, we're grateful for this morning, for this reminder of who you are and how you work. Lord, I, I pray that as we consider um, your son's experience in Nazareth, in his hometown, Lord, that it, it would not just simply be kind of this, this asterisk in terms of Jesus' ministry, that he was so effective and, and so impactful in all these areas except for Nazareth. Lord, but I pray that we would be, we'd be cautioned, that our heart would, would, would beware of, of the sin of being skeptical, Lord, of your work in familiar areas of our life. God, we invite you into every area of our life, into the highs and the lows, into the areas where it's maybe obvious, like kind of camp life or Sunday morning church and worship experiences, those obvious, impactful, powerful ways that you move in our midst. God, but we also invite you into the small mundane areas of our life, where we're doing chores or doing errands, where we're teaching our kids how to hold a spoon, where we're just trying to get through the day. Lord, would you be at work in those mundane areas as well? You are welcome. We invite your presence. We invite your work and your, 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 your healing, Lord, in each of those areas. God, would you do this, we pray.